Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a new podcast on the Bible, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. And now here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hi gang, Bill Creasy here with this week's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Hey, last Saturday I attended a meeting here in San Diego of the Knights of the Holy Sepulchre. The Equestrian Order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem, as it's formally called, is an internationally recognized order of knighthood founded in the 12th century and continuing to this very day. The order's primary mission is to support the Christian community in the Holy Land, which includes Israel, Palestine, Jordan, and many of the surrounding Arab nations. The meeting began with Mass, the Mass that was celebrated by Bishop Robert McElroy, who preached a really fabulous homily on Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke 18, 9-14. Now, you may recall the story. A Pharisee went up to Jerusalem to the temple to pray. And he looked to himself and he said, Oh God, I thank you I'm not like the rest of humanity, greedy, dishonest, adulterous, or even like that tax collector over there hiding in the shadows. Why, I fast twice a week and I pay tithes on my whole income. But the tax collector stood off at a distance, hiding in the shadows, looking at the ground. He wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast and he prayed, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, the latter went home justified, not the former. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Bishop McElroy began his homily on this reading by asking, how many of you in high school read Herman Melville's Moby Dick? Well, a lot of people raised their hands. And then the bishop asked, how many liked it? Only one person raised his hand, me. <laughs> he, he then went on to address Melville's final novel, Billy Budd, using the story to illustrate what a righteous man was truly like. Now, if you haven't read Billy Budd, do it. That's your assignment for this coming week. But as the bishop was speaking of Billy Budd, my thoughts went back to Moby Dick. I served six years in the Marine Corps, 1966 to 72. I was a Vietnam-era Marine. After my service, I began college as a 24-year-old freshman at Arizona State University. And I had some really major questions about good and evil, sin and salvation, questions about the fundamental issues of the human condition. I started college with a double major in English literature and philosophy. In my first semester, I registered for two classes, in English, the American novel, and in philosophy, metaphysics, the concept of self. And to my surprise, the primary textbook for each class was Herman Melville's Moby Dick. For 15 weeks, I delved deeply into Moby Dick, and I ate clam chowder every day. Moby Dick is principally a story of self-discovery. It begins with the famous opening, Call Me Ishmael, 
Now you remember who Ishmael is in scripture. Uh, Ishmael was the son of Hagar by Abraham. Isaac was the son of Abraham by Sarah. Ishmael was the outcast. Ishmael was the one put out of his home, sent to wander in the world. Call me Ishmael. The main character's name is not Ishmael. We don't know what it is. He simply says, call me Ishmael, thus identifying the character with Ishmael in Scripture. The story of Moby Dick, the story of Ishmael, is a journey of self-discovery. That is, Ishmael signs on to the Pequod, a whaling ship that's going out to sea and will wander out at sea on a mission to find the white whale. The ship is captained by Ahab. Remember Ahab in scripture? He was the evil king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Ahab and his vile, loathsome and despicable wife, Jezebel, they were truly evil. Well, Ishmael finds his way in life, discovers who he is on board the ship. And in the end, the ship is sunk, Ishmael is the sole survivor, and he's picked up adrift at sea by another ship called the Rachel. Remember Rachel? The beloved wife of Jacob, the one who gave birth to Joseph. Well, what a story. You can study Moby Dick for years and never mind it for all it's worth. But this journey of self-discovery is a common theme in literature. The story of a young man or young woman leaving home, going off on a journey or an adventure, and returning home with a much deeper understanding of who he or she is. This genre of literature is called a bildungsroman, that is, a coming-of-age story that focuses on the psychological, moral, and spiritual growth of the character. In the Middle Ages, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is a good example. In modern literature, Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn or James Joyce's portrait of the artist as a young man fits the bill. But in any case, all this got me thinking about Jesus, about who he is and what he did. Now we know that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. In the fullness of his humanity, Jesus must have experienced the same journey of self-discovery as we all do. In last week's podcast, we explored who Jesus is based upon the prologue of John's Gospel. We read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and lived among us. Well, that's a profound truth expressed in John's Gospel some 60 years after Jesus lived and died. John has had a long time to think about who Jesus was and is and express those thoughts in his gospel. And even the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, understand Jesus in light of 30 or so years of post-resurrection. But when did Jesus know who he was? You know, I've, I've puzzled over this question for a long time. And I think, as we read the Gospels, we see Jesus' self-identity gradually emerging. 
As a young boy of 12 years old, we read in Luke the story of Jesus lost at the temple. Remember, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to Jerusalem for Passover, as they did every year, and they spent a wonderful time in Jerusalem. Typically, the population of Jerusalem is around 100,000 people, but at Passover, the major of three pilgrimage festivals, you had upwards of a million people in town. And Jesus, when it's time to leave, went with his parents up to the Mount of Olives, top of the Mount of Olives, where they would then travel all the way down to Jericho, 17.3 miles, and from Jericho, they'd travel north on the east side of the Jordan River to Beit Shan, then cross back over the Jordan River and make their way back to Nazareth. It would be a week-long journey. So at the end of the Passover vacation, Mary, Joseph and Jesus went to the top of the Mount of Olives where they would gather up with all their friends from Nazareth and they would all walk back together. Well, as things go, it's a hurry up and wait. You know, people were late, uh, they're waiting for others, the whole group gets together, they're sorting out their supplies. And Jesus thought, you know, I have a few more questions for the rabbis back at the temple. Well, from the top of the Mount of Olives, the temple is only, oh, I don't know, three, four hundred yards away. So he went back to the temple and was speaking with the rabbis. And then he thought, oh gosh, I'm, I'm late, I better get back up there. So he went back up to the top of the Mount of Olives and everyone was gone. They had left. All the families all had gone down the, the road to Jericho they thought Jesus was there. He was there when they gathered up. But it turns out he wasn't. So he gets up to the top of the Mount of Olives. No one's there. And what is he going to do? Well, I imagine just as I told my sons when we traveled, and they've been with me to pretty much everywhere I've gone, to Israel, Egypt, Jordan, Turkey, Greece, uh, all over the Mediterranean world. And when they were growing up, I would say, if you ever get separated from me, don't go anywhere. Stay put. I'll come find you. And I imagine that's what Mary said to Jesus. If we get separated in this big crowd, go back to the southern steps of the temple, sit down, and I'll come find you. At the end of the day, Mary and Joseph got down to Jericho, and sure enough, Jesus was not there. So immediately, they turned around and started back up the road, 17.3 miles. It took them three days to get to the top of the Mount of Olives because they were looking down in the Wadi Kelt, hundreds of feet vertical drop, and thought that Jesus perhaps had fallen off. Well, they get up to the top of the Mount of Olives. They haven't found him. So what to do? They go to the temple to pray. And when they get there, sure enough, there is Jesus sitting on the southern steps, talking with the rabbis. Well, they are beside themselves. Mary said, what have you done? I have been looking everywhere for you. You, you have, oh, this is horrible. And Jesus, like any 12-year-old boy, said, oh, why were you worried? I'm right here. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? This is where you told me to be. Well, they took him back to Nazareth and we have a 15-year gap in the story. Not a word about Jesus. He grew up. He worked with his father as a carpenter in Nazareth until he's 30 years old. What happened during those years? Well, people speculate 
oh, he went off to India and he learned all these things. No, he didn't go anywhere. He stayed in the little town of Nazareth. And I suspect we didn't hear anything about him because he had been grounded after that stunt that he pulled at the temple. Well, in any case, Jesus emerges at about 30 years old and he begins his public ministry. Between 12 years old and 30 years old, he must have understood something about who he was and what he needed to do. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River opposite Jericho, and he immediately is driven out into the wilderness where he's tempted. A temptation. Satan tempted him. We have three temptations. I think there are a lot more than three. The three are simply examples. I think he was continually tempted all during that 40-day period with all kinds of temptations that fit into the three categories uh, that we have. He was tempted. It was a period of questioning. Am I sure this is what I'm to do? Am I sure I'm to launch this public ministry? Maybe I'm deluding myself. I don't know. He came back and began his public ministry in Galilee, teaching preaching and healing. That was his ministry. But over time, three years of public ministry, he continued praying. He continued going into the mountains to pray, conferring with God the Father. And finally, with the murder of John the Baptist, his cousin, Jesus reached a crisis point. He went into the Golan on the east side of the Sea of Galilee to pray all night long. And when he came down off the mountain, he said to his disciples, taking them up to Caesarea Philippi, who do people say I am? It must have been a question plaguing him, a question that he struggled with all night long on the Golan. Who do people say I am? And they said, well, some say you're a prophet, some say you're Elijah returned. But Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, I think you're right. You're correct. And then he took them to the Mount of Transfiguration. At the Mount of Transfiguration, I believe Mount Hermon, almost 10,000 feet above sea level, about a three-day journey from Caesarea Philippi, Jesus was transfigured. That is, metamorphosized. It's not simply he got all shiny. He was metamorphosized like a caterpillar to a butterfly. And we see him in the fullness of his divinity. Peter, James, and John see him as well. And he's accompanied by Moses and Elijah. Moses, a representative of the law, Elijah, a representative of the prophets, two credible witnesses. And the voice of God the Father says, This is my Son whom I love, in him I am well pleased. Listen to him. If we had any doubt about who Jesus is, the doubt is erased right there. If Jesus had any doubt about who he is, where he belonged, and what he was supposed to do, those doubts were erased right there.
because after the Mount of Transfiguration, he sets his face like flint and he abandons the public ministry of teaching, preaching, and healing, and he makes a beeline toward Jerusalem and the cross. So I think as we read the Gospels, if we read them closely and carefully, and if we consider Jesus in the fullness of his humanity, we can see him struggling with his self-identity, as we all do, and finally coming to the conclusion, the understanding of who he is, where he belongs, and what he's supposed to do. And I'm very happy that he goes through that process because we're told at the end of the Gospel according to Mark that after his death, burial, and resurrection, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of his Father, and he intercedes for us on our behalf. I'm very glad of that because we have someone seated next to God the Father who knows how we feel, who knows the struggle that we go through in our own self-identity, in us discovering who we are, where we belong, and what we're supposed to do. And he can say to God the Father, you know, I can imagine God saying, oh, you know, I've been watching Creasy down there and oh, I don't know what to do with him. And Jesus said, it's all right. I got it under control. I'm working with him. I know how he feels. I know how he struggles. I'm working with him and we'll get him here. We'll get him in line. I'm very grateful for that. So as you move along through the week, struggling with who you are, where you belong, and what you're supposed to do, understand that Jesus did too. And as he discovered his purpose and his identity, so will we discover ours if we keep our eyes fixed on him. You're listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Easter is just around the corner, and Logos has a special offer for our podcast listeners. From now through Easter, we're offering 30% off all enrollments and courses in the Logos online classroom. That's not all. Listeners to Scripture Uncovered will get an additional 10% off enrollment. That's 40% off enrollment in any course of your choice in the Logos Online Classroom. You can choose from courses on Genesis, the story of King David, the Gospel according to Luke, Acts, Romans, Revelation, and more. All of our online courses have an average 5-star rating from students. Go to LogosBibleStudy.com and click on Online Classroom. Choose a course, and at checkout enter coupon code EASTER2018. That's all lowercase, EASTER2018. Easter 2018, and you'll automatically get 40% off enrollment. LogosBibleStudy.com, click on Online Classroom, enter coupon code EASTER2018 at checkout. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Creasy. So welcome back. In this second half of our podcast, I'd like to address your questions that you mailed in since the last podcast, since last week. So question number one comes from Alice N., And Alice asks, many Protestant denominations teach the doctrine of once saved, always saved. Is there such a thing as eternal security? Well, that's a really good question, Alice. You know, when we enter a relationship with God through Christ, and I think that's how we have to view it. You know, salvation is a relationship. It's choosing to enter into a relationship with God through Christ or not. Christ took our sin upon himself. He paid the penalty for our sin 
before a holy and righteous God, enabling God to view us as righteous. So, through the gift of grace, God extends his hand and offers us a relationship with himself. He offers us a place in the family of God. We're born in the condition of sin, and barring the radical intervention of God's grace, we'll continue in that condition of sin. But God provides the grace that enables us to respond in faith, and when we do, we step from the world into the family of God as adopted sons and daughters of God. We're part of the family. It's a positional change. Our position changes. Now, once in the family of God, how do we get there? By grace through faith. But once there, we're to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received, as Paul says. And what kind of life is that? A life that honors God, not one that makes him ashamed of us. So, a life, if you will, of active love, a life of good works. There's no conflict whatsoever between faith and works. We get into the family of God by grace through faith. We live in the family of God by a life of active love or a life of good works. It's like breathing in and breathing out. James in his epistle says, you tell me you have faith. Great. Glad to hear it. Show me the evidence. Because a genuine, authentic faith will always manifest itself 100% of the time in a life of active love. And if you have nothing to show for your faith, then you really have to question whether you have the faith to begin with. Maybe you were just playing some kind of silly religious game. But if you respond to God authentically in faith, and you step positionally from the world into the family of God, and you begin living a life of active love in the family of God as his son or daughter, well, you can be assured of your position. Now, you can always mess up. And if you do, you turn to God, you ask for forgiveness, God forgives you, and you continue on in the family of God. As Paul says in Romans 8, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing will separate you from God's love. God loves you. It's like the sun shining. You can't stop it. You can put an umbrella over your head and keep it off of you, an umbrella of sin, but God loves you. So, is there such a thing as eternal security? We can be secure in our position in the family of God. If we authentically respond in faith and we begin living a life that manifests that faith, a life of active love, we can be secure in our position. But you know, God, like in the story of the prodigal son, if you want to turn around and leave, God won't stop you from doing it. He won't. He'll say, all right, I respect your decision. I gave you free will. I respect your decision. If you want to walk away, go right ahead. I'll always be here if you want to come back. You're always my son. You're always my daughter. But I'll respect your freedom to walk away. And I think that's a good way to view our eternal salvation as a relationship with God, as sons and daughters of the living God. Now, we turn to question number two. And boy, this is a good one from Christy A. 
Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is the catalyst for the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem to arrest Jesus and demand his crucifixion. It's a crucial event in John's Gospel. And yet, Lazarus is never even mentioned in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. How come? Great question. Lazarus is indeed the turning point in John's Gospel as far as the religious leaders in Jerusalem are concerned. After Jesus raises Lazarus, a man who's been in the tomb for four days, there is no question about whether he raised Lazarus or not. And in fact, the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, has an emergency executive session that very night. And they debate, what do we do with this guy? What do we do with Jesus? Well, some said, he, well, maybe he is the Messiah. Others said, no, he couldn't be the Messiah. The Messiah is from Bethlehem, not Nazareth. And they went on and on. And finally, the high priest stood up. And he said, enough, enough. You don't get it. This is not about whether he's the Messiah or not. Many people claim to be the Messiah. Let them present their case. No, this is about the survival of the nation. He came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, and he went to the temple with a whip and he wrecked the place. And day by day, he escalated the encounter, targeting us, saying to us, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Seven times he did, every day. And if he comes back tomorrow and escalates again, there will be a bloodbath in this city. There will be a rebellion, a revolution, and the Romans will come down on us like the wrath of God. This is about survival, the survival of the nation. It is more expedient, he says, that one man die than the entire nation perished. And given Lazarus, if he comes back tomorrow and escalates with a dead man walking, the bloodbath will occur. That is the issue. Well, Jesus doesn't come back. He's arrested that night, the trial before the Sanhedrin, and then his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. But whatever happened to Lazarus? We don't know. We don't know. On the island of Cyprus, there's a church of Lazarus. It's said that he went there to Cyprus and lived the rest of his life there and eventually died. But we don't know what happened to Lazarus. But why are Matthew, Mark, and Luke silent? John writes his gospel in the late 80s, perhaps early 90s, 60 years after, after Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they emerge in the 60s, maybe early 70s. I suspect that if Lazarus is still alive when Matthew, Mark, and Luke were writing, they didn't mention him, perhaps, to protect him. Um, I don't know any other reason why he wouldn't be mentioned. They protect him. That's the best I can do on that question. And finally, we turn to question number three from Lily I. Lily writes, I was listening to your first podcast, and I understood you to say that the creation story in Genesis is basically a fairy tale. Am I correct? Please explain. Well, thinking back to that first podcast a couple weeks ago, I, I spoke about Genesis chapters 1 through 11 as being primeval chapters in Scripture. You know, the Bible is not a book. 
the Bible is a collection of books, uh, a collection of books spanning, oh, about 1,500 years in time, written by many different authors uh, over many centuries, uh, edited and redacted, and finally brought together as the canon of Scripture, Old Testament and New. And in that collection of many books, we have different genres of literature. We have historical literature, like First and Second Kings. Those people, the 39 kings of Israel and Judah, actually lived at the time we read in Scripture. They did the things uh, we read about in Scripture. We have archaeological evidence in, in Israel, uh, in Assyria, in Babylon, that support those stories. It's historical literature uh, with, well, a, a literary twist to it. We have poetry uh, in the Psalms, for example. We have letters and epistles in the New Testament. And we have mythopoeic literature. That is, not mythology, but literature that addresses the fundamental issues of the human condition in story form. And I think the creation story is just that. It's mythopoeic literature. It is a very highly structured, perfectly balanced story that addresses the fundamental issues of how did we get here? How did the world get here? How did we get here? What are we doing here? What's our purpose? And what's our relationship to the rest of creation? You know, every ancient culture, the Assyrian culture, the Babylonian culture, the Egyptian culture, all have creation stories, mythopoeic literature that addresses those fundamental issues. When we read in Genesis chapter 1 that God created the world and all that's in it in six days and then rested on the seventh, it's a literary construct to tell the story that addresses those issues. It's not science, it's not history, it's not geology, it's mythopoeic literature that in no way diminishes the story. And I think to call it a fairy tale uh, is, well, a superficial understanding of the genre of literature. Our job in Logos Bible Study, in teaching classes, live classes and online, is to create educated readers of Scripture who are capable of engaging the text of Scripture on its own terms within its historical, literary, and cultural context. That's our job, and that's what we seek to do. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and logosbiblestudy.com. Don't forget about our Easter sale. Podcast listeners will get 40% off by going to logosbiblestudy.com, clicking on Online Classroom, and at checkout, enter coupon code EASTER2018. That's E-A-S-T-E-R, all lowercase, 2018, EASTER2018. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.